Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope for those of you happening across our broadcast for the very first time is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that is precisely where you come in. If uh, you've got questions about the Bible, well, maybe a particular passage in the Bible raised more questions for you than it's given you answers, maybe uh, you'd like to find out how to apply the principles, precepts, even the practical examples we find in the Bible of people going through issues just like the the ones you're facing currently. We'd love to be able to explore the Word of God from that practical lens. If maybe you've been asked a tough question about your faith in Christ and uh, you found yourself a day late and a dollar short as far as being able to give an effective and uh, powerful reason uh, for the hope that's within you that not only impacts the hearts but the minds of those you get a chance to share with, hey, bring those on. We'd love to be able to come alongside and equip you to do just that. The events of the day, even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, those things are on your heart or on your mind. Love to hear from you on the broadcast. Only one standard for our questions. Just make sure it's a sincere question. If you're looking for an answer straight from the scriptures, we'll be happy to provide it. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That will be provided in spelling below the screen. If you'd like to join us on one of said screens, you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab on the purple bar at the top of the screen, and you'll be sent to our streaming page, ccftucson.online.church. There on the right-hand side of the screen, you'll be able to engage with us live in chat, and perhaps even in just passing fancy, uh, get the proper spelling for the email address for later use. That will remain open and available whether we're on air or not, and it helps keep the questions organized for us even for later revisiting. Right. Also note our social media pages. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. But noting that we don't control when or why we're taken off of those platforms or even uh, have notes and answers given removed from said video formats. Uh, you can still join us on our website. We want to encourage you to make that your regular meeting place for this ministry. And note as well that the standard for the questions are as follows, sincere Bible questions. If you want to hear the answer, if they ultimately lead us to the Bible as the substance of the answer, and of course they are asked in the form of a question, we will answer in the form of an answer. So, uh, without further ado, and before we get into answering said questions, we always make it a habit to take some time to pray, ask that God is a part of this broadcast, not because He won't if we don't, but He likes hearing from us, yeah. and of course it help, reminds us of our purpose here as well. So, with all of that said, and uh, hopefully looking forward to a good broadcast, why don't we take a moment to involve him? Yeah, Lord, thank you that you're here. You said where two or more would gather in your name, you'd be there in the midst. Well, that's Sean and myself at the very least, but thank you for all the people that are taking time out of their day to join us uh, on this journey through your word. I pray, Father, it would be a fruitful journey. I pray that you would guide and direct our destination precisely to those places in your truth that you would like us to be able to explore and, and maybe be able to understand in a deeper and fuller way than we ever have before. Thank you, Lord 
for giving us this priceless gift, uh, this lamp unto our feet and light unto our path, this uh, wonderful blessing that can be more satisfying to us than our necessary food. So guide us and may your word in your word alone speak. And uh, may you uh, send it out just as you promised in a way that doesn't return to you void, but accomplishes everything you sent it out to do. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, keeping an eye out for the questions, we want to start with one we received by email and hopefully uh, give you guys the time to gather thoughts. Although, uh, why not? Let's uh, start with Isaiah's question. He wants to know, is it true God loves himself more than he loves us? An individual who remained nameless taught God loves himself more than he loves us. Okay. Um, if, that's tr- if that loves, if that is true, that he loves himself more than he loves us, would that be idolatry against his character? Is this true? Thank you. Um, Okay, well, well, obviously it's important to note the statements of people are rarely surmised properly in one sentence. I'd want to know in what context he was talking. Uh, but when it comes to the statement that God loves himself more than he loves us, there's certain statements that are made in Scripture that note God is doesn't do something known as love, and he certainly doesn't do the kind of love that we do. He is love by nature. And for example, the book of 1 John, it notes that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, so we also ought to lay down our lives to the right. brethren. In the same book, in the next chapter, it notes, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. No, no it's not God does love. God loves a lot. God not even necessarily loves himself. God is love by nature. He's yeah. going to relate to... He might to, catch God on a day when he's not being loving. No, that's that impossible. Is, yeah, no more his than, nature is love. Yeah, no more than you wouldn't catch us being human. But the right. point being made is this: if I then ask myself, what kind of love is demonstrated? Is it that narcissistic self-obsession? Is that that free love that you hear about so much in the New Age and the news? Is it the kind of love that just wants to do nice things for people or hopes the best? There's a Greek word called agape, and that's uh, been defined for us in a few sections of. Scripture, what would be probably the most direct and succinct before we get into the objects of his love and why? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the nature of God's love, I think, is best defined for us in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. There we read, love suffers long and is kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. Now, I think we just answered Isaiah's question with that. Right. Uh, Does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God's love never fails. So, you know, here we see the character of God being love defined for us in those, uh, you know, again, uh, 16 different characteristics that we see there. You know, and so kind of like a multifaceted gem, we can see the character and nature of God's love reflected in those specific ways in that passage. And one of the insights that we get is the answer to Isaiah's question. Does God love himself more than he loves us? No, love doesn't seek its own. So love is always more concerned about others than it is about itself. And 
I guess, giving the benefit of the doubt, Isaiah, to the individual that you're speaking about, what they may have been emphasizing as in objects or acts of his love was glory, and that is something that God is exclusivistic with. For example, Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8, the God of Israel specifically notes that I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. And if the pastor then made from that inference that God's uh, glory is most manifested in his love, well then I can see where the calculus kind of got the variable switched around. But the point being made about glory, as opposed to God being loving, love is something that God does by nature, but God can't also violate his nature by glorify some, uh, glorifying rather something lesser than himself. Why? Because there is no greater object for God to glorify apart from himself. If you're at the top, then that is by definition where the buck stops, so right. to speak. But if on the other hand we were to read into that, so God can't do good things to anyone apart from himself. God's not interested in anyone other than himself. No, no that's glory, not the God of the Bible. No, yeah. and the glory means weight. So if we're assigning worth, obviously it's recognizing reality when God glorifies himself. He recognizes himself for who he is. It would be weird if God was in denial about the reality of who he was. If on the other hand we were to confuse the terms, I can see why that would be difficult. But remember Isaiah, God is love by nature, the kind of love that's defined for us in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. The first two verses, I think, discount that interpretation, which I think brings us into another great topic. When people are reading the Bible, coming to conclusions about the Bible, what's, I guess, obviously, step one is to read it. Step two is to That's not stop. That's a good stop. first step. Yeah. <laughs> step two is to not stop until the point has been actually made, and maybe 2.5 is to finish reading the book as a whole before you come to ultimate conclusions about it. But there's a third step that I think, and we can get into the fancy terms about it, but what's always going to be key, not just in having interpretations, but testing interpretations. Where do we go for those? Well, uh, I think it's a very uh, simple process. You allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Uh, there's a highfalutin term with this called the analogy of faith, and what that essentially means is that God doesn't contradict himself. Uh, and so uh, when we take a look at the Word of God, we can see that God isn't going to you know, have a mood, if you will, and say something one day and be in a different mood another day so that we couldn't have really any idea from day to day what His nature is all about. And so in that same sense, uh, what we say, I guess to sum up this thing, the way they explained it to us back in seminary days, what we say about the broad issues of Scripture has to be verified by each individual verse we find in Scripture. If we say, for instance, um, God is love, okay, that's a broad statement, okay, but is that verified by the particular verses that we find in Scripture? We find out, yes, in fact, that it is. But if we, what we say about the broad strokes of, say, a message or a theme in Scripture isn't supported by the other individual passages in Scripture, then we have to take a step back and say, well, maybe my take on the broad strokes message of Scripture just isn't really true. You know, for instance, that statement that God uh, isn't concerned about anyone but himself. Okay, 
that's a broad statement. This person is saying that the Bible represents that point of view. Well, we've shown in a number of circumstances how that doesn't stand up under examination. Maybe one of the most powerful, you know, we've seen love described in 1 Corinthians 13, and, and it, uh, in a sense, defined in 1 John. But boy, uh, in uh, John chapter 13, we're told, uh, now before the Feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. That literally means not just to the end of his life here on earth, it literally means he loved them to the nth degree. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them with ultimate love. Well, how did he show that love? By standing up from the table, taking off his robes, dressing himself like the lowest servant, and washing his disciples' feet, uh, doing the most humiliating form of service. And so we see that love isn't just a sentiment. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a theological definition. It is something that always results in action. So we put all these things together, uh, we find ourselves being able to understand what love is all about. And when a truth claim gets made, like the one, Isaiah, you bring up, that God is only interested in himself and can't be interested in someone else, uh, you know, and the question comes up, well, isn't that kind of a form of idolatry? I would say, yeah, in a sense, because that's not the God of the Bible. You've, you've portrayed God in a way that is less than uh, the truth that we find in the Word, right? Right, and thus would come to a nothing, because that isn't something yeah. that we can actually verify. Yeah. Um, question from Nino. We didn't get the chance to go into this yesterday because I'm still trying to figure out what it is, but basically she is wondering about the statement made in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, regarding the earth being without form and void, and the Spirit of the Lord brooding, hovering, literally maintaining the world state over the face of the waters. And the question, this is where I'm kind of more confused, is was there a pre-Adamic world? Oh yeah, that's, what uh, that's a big the, question. What was the purpose of creating the earth from water? Now I know about the gap theory, and I know about those other things, but in the association with water, I think the inference is that God, the only reason that the world would be covered in water was because he flooded it, not that he just made it water at first, but um, let me go to the passage where it's uh, used as a proof text for the pre-Adamic race. This is in Jeremiah chapter 4, and again, Jeremiah speaking at a time where mm -hmm. Israel is about to be invaded by Babylon. They're going to be an object of the judgment of God. In verse 23, we're going to be given basically some interesting language. It says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, all its cities were broken down, at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. So the inference into this section of Scripture, which, by the way, goes on to define itself as the aftermath of God's judgment, they would then say the only reason the earth is without form and void is because God judged it, that it was rendered this way. Right. Because God doesn't make things formless and void. He creates it with a purpose for the intention of inhabiting life. So instead of 
I guess, finishing Genesis chapter 1 and noting that was God's intention. He just did it in stages in order to set something else up. They would say, well, this is uh, basically a misrepresentation of God's character if you say he started with something formless and made it formed. But if, on the other hand, we're we're going to go with what the text actually says, what do we actually know about creation? Well, there's another verse that you have to take in mind. The, The phrase formless and void in Hebrew is the term tohu vavbohu, formless and void, literally. And uh, some people will take a look at that passage from Jeremiah chapter 4 that does describe an act of judgment that literally, now catch this, made a place uninhabitable. Uh, That's the point of all of this, that it would not support life any longer uh, in, in the sense of judgment and the Babylonians coming and wiping out all the things that were involved with all of this. Um, yeah, saying it was formless and void, the, the fact that it could no longer be built up or, or supportive uh, isn't, uh, uh, is, isn't a, an analogy that would be inappropriate describing the level of judgment that was going to come against Jerusalem. However, we also find that phrase used in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18. It says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, but formed it to be inhabited. Now, the idea of God who established it, did not create it in vain, there's that phrase again, tohu vabohu. He did not make it in vain, but formed it to be inhabited. Now, when we take that passage from Isaiah and bring it back to Psalm 1, uh, or I should say Genesis chapter 1, we discover something. First of all, we discover that creation, all this is saying is that creation was a process. And the first part of this process was that the earth uh, did not have any land sticking up out of the water. It was covered with water entirely. And, uh, you know, such is really the case today. If God did not raise the continents up as we understand them, uh, if we were to uh, take the earth and average it all out, uh, you know, with uh, mountains and valleys and so forth, uh, the entire earth would be hundreds and hundreds of feet underwater. But because of the uplift that God brought to the continents and so forth, uh, there are uh, continents and land masses that stick up out of the water. That's really all that we're talking about there in Genesis. And no, we're not just doing the cosmic cop-out of saying, oh, something happened, therefore God did it. We have record and reason to trust said record, verified starting with the resurrection from the dead of Jesus of Nazareth, to note God's direct involvement in the separation of the land from the sea. If you don't like that, then we go back to what we can prove, but But, we don't just... But let's go back to the whole, uh, you know, uh, did God create or did he recreate in Genesis chapter 1? There are those who will say that uh, this idea that the earth was covered with water was a flood that God used to wipe out a pre-Adamic race, that the fall of Satan happened sometime in this past existence, uh, and uh, that uh, just as God would wipe out the, uh, the majority of human beings that were on the earth during the time of Noah, he did it once before with this pre-Adamic race going on. Uh, And so he, in a sense, had a do-over. There was this rebellion, and uh, that's what happened. Now, here's the problem with all of that. Uh, In order to come to that conclusion, 
What do you have to do with Genesis chapter 1? Do you read out of it, or do you read into it? You have to read a lot into it. Yeah, an, an awful lot into it. And, you know, when you take a passage like Jeremiah chapter 4, which describes the aftermath of the Babylonian invasion, which is a picture of judgment, rendering a place unable to support life the way it used to. But then you take the passage we saw in Isaiah 45, where it talks about creation happening in stages. In other words, when God began creating the heavens and the earth, we see a progression that takes place where the earth begins in a state where it cannot support life, and then is formed and made by God into a place where life can not only exist, but that it can also thrive and grow and prosper. That's all the phrase tohu bohu means there in uh, the book of Genesis. Now, if you want to get into this imaginary idea that, uh, okay, there was this pre-Adamic race, and that's when the fall of Satan happened and so on, you, you, we, like we talked about earlier, uh, what did we say about a large truth statement we find in Scripture? It has to be verified how? By checking that conclusion with other scriptures. Okay, it's got to fit. You know, and if there are other passages that render that particular take invalid, we don't hold on to it. Okay, the big uh, you know, capital letter issue that we're dealing with here that Nina brings up is that people believe there was a pre-Adamic race, that there was a fall, and that God judged this pre-Adamic race. And the, the main reason they come up with this, believe it or not, is trying to explain away uh, fossils of dinosaurs and things along that line. Now, there's some real problems with that. I can see where somebody that is trying to deal with a friend who says, oh, I can't believe the, the Bible, what about the dinosaurs? Oh, well, you know, there's this pre-Adamic race, and who knows how many billions of years they lived beforehand, and that explains radiometric dating, and that explains the fossil record. Isn't that great? Well, um, in a sense, I guess you've won a minor battle, but you've lost the war. Why do I say that? Well, there's some passages you've got to wrestle with. First of all, we are told in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, that when God finished creating everything, in verse uh, 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. In other words, when God looked at the entirety of his creation, he saw it as very good. That's emphatic in the Hebrew. There was no fault. There was no flaw. There was no evil. There was no death. There was no suffering. Okay? Uh, we then run into another problem. How did death and suffering come into the world? Was it pre-existing? Were there uh, those that had gotten wrong before? And what we are dealing with in the Garden of Eden is just God, uh, well, he's kind of recreating it and, and bringing about the land coming up out of the waters and, and so on. Or are there some scriptures that tell us that sin and death happened at a particular time in biblical history, not before Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, but afterwards. Is there a scripture that says that? Well, Genesis 3 would be its first noting, but then we can verify that with other passages. For example, Romans chapter 4 all the way through 8, where it repeats like a beating drum, that through one man sin yeah. entered the world, not the new world. And death through sin. Right. In other words, death was not a reality prior to the fall 
of man. Now, those that believe in this pre-Adamic race and God's judgment upon it and the fossil record have some explaining to do because in the fossil record we find, for instance, uh, dinosaur bones that display the idea of having bone cancer and things like this. Uh, we see the record of uh, carnivorous behavior of nature red and fang and claw. Now, if death and suffering happened before the fall of Adam, well, then Paul was wrong in Romans chapter 5, where he said that uh, death came into the world through one man, that sin happened and death through sin happened because of the fall of Adam. And it gets worse. Paul uses that one man analogy to describe another man's action on our behalf, right? Right, the last Adam. Right, that just through that, uh, just as through one man, through another man, through Jesus, so salvation and life became available to all men. So you throw out the first one, you got to throw out the second one, you know, from Paul's lights. So that's one of the reasons why we don't believe in the gap theory. Uh, the gap theory states that there is an indeterminate amount of time between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and verse 2, that the world was made, and uh, the language can be used, the word hayah in Hebrew can be used to describe something that is made like something, but the word hayah can also, in other contexts, be used to describe simply the act of God creating. It's not that specific. So, it's also something you can say when you karate chop stuff. Yeah, and, and the other thing is this. If your entire take on a particular biblical issue depends upon a narrow definition of one Hebrew or Greek word, uh, the Bible isn't that, uns isn't that subtle. I mean, it's very clear uh, about how it portrays things. So, uh, you know, people will say, you know, well, you know, I know this pastor, and, you know, I've heard this guy in the past talk about the gap theory, and, and you know, wouldn't it be great if it explained all these things? Yeah, but in a sense, you're throwing in the towel on the clear teaching of Scripture to try to win points with someone who's probably not going to buy the clear teaching of Scripture anyway. Uh, you know, uh, I uh, remember I was working out in the gym, and uh, there was a guy that I'd been sharing the Lord with. He's a retired attorney, and we'd have these long conversations about biblical truth, and he'd try to mock me by saying, oh, yeah, they found this fossil, and, uh, you know, you th uh, it was millions of years old, but you think it was 20 minutes old, ha, ha, ha. So I'm running on the treadmill, and he comes up, and he's just looking as proud of himself as he can. He goes, yeah, I was just in the steam room. And there's this pastor in there, and you know what he told me? And I go, okay, here we go, and I press it on pause. And he goes, he told me that you can believe in millions of years in evolution and still believe in the Bible. And I thought, okay, here we go. And what he said next, I'll never forget. He goes, that made me sick. And I went, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, anybody who's read Genesis knows you can't wedge millions and billions of years it's just not there. He goes, I totally disagree with you, but at least you're consistent. And he walked away. And I never forgot that conversation because when we try to fold, spindle, and mutilate the Bible to fit the latest and greatest uh, in vogue fad in the scientific, notice I didn't say scientific, but scientific community, um, we're really selling out in a way that not only... Uh, ends up having us with a strange and not consistent view of Scripture, but we're really not building the bridges with non-believers that we think we're building. You know, they'd really rather have us stick to our guns. And you know, why do I believe in a literal, 
uh, six to 10,000 year creation. Why do I believe in a literal Adam and Eve? Because Jesus taught these things. He said, have you not read from the very beginning of creation, God made them male and female in Mark chapter 10. He didn't say from the end of creation. If the creation is billions of years old, we came on the scene almost at the very last. So do I believe Jesus or do I believe these people? I'd rather take the Lord's word for it. I find him far more credible than Carl Sagan or the latest uh, evolutionist Neil deGrasse Tyson or someone like that with a uh, uh, program on Fox. Peachy. Um, Follow through from Isaiah. I think we can narrow this down to are we predestined to be saved or is it possible for us to make a decision for salvation? Yes. Yes. That's that's the answer. The Bible teaches both. And, uh, you know, as we've said on the program before, we talk about the doctrine of predestination. Does the Bible teach predestination? Absolutely it does. In the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we are told that we know that God works all things together for good. For those who love him are called according to, to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, there's that word, predestination in the Bible. Did God have a choice about our salvation? Was God shocked and surprised when we gave our lives to Jesus? If I were to test that with other passages, no. You no. did not choose me, but I chose you that you should go and bear fruit. Yeah, so the Bible says God had a choice in our salvation. Now, having said that, does that mean that we don't have a choice in our salvation and that our choice doesn't matter? Well, since Isaiah is asking this question, I'll stick to his favorite book. This is Isaiah 55 and verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We can also go to Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 19, noting God has set before us life and death, blessing and cursing, then with the imperative tells us to choose life that you may live both you and your descendants. In Joshua 24, verses 14 through 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As if there was a distinction between the decisions he was capable of making and that Israel could potentially make alongside him. Not that you've been predestined to commit idolatry and I'm not, so nah. It's, here's what I'm doing, here's what you ought to do. We're following Moses' example, aren't we? We can go to the New Testament and go to Matthew 11, 28 through 30, or 23 and verse 37, and noting that Jesus is making calls for people to come to him, not telling people, if well... If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Not if everyone's of the elect, you will be drinking whether you like it or not. If we're talking about this from an infinite perspective, obviously he knows who are his. That is also a scriptural statement. But if, on the other hand, we're to discount the idea that we play any role in this, then we're essentially going too far in one direction, well, as the illustration's made. We're knocking off one of the planes in the, uh, the wings on the airplane yeah. at 30,000 feet. Yeah, Revelation chapter uh, 22, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely and without cost. Yeah. And okay, can... so, so here's the deal. And this endlessly frustrates people because people like their systems, you know, they like their, their, their structures and so forth. Here's the deal. Um, does the Bible teach predestination? Yes. Does the Bible teach that you and I have a choice and that our choice matters? Yes. That's what we affirm. Where different theological systems get into trouble 
is not what they affirm, but what they deny. In other words, if I affirm that God is in control and that he has a plan and that he is working out that plan and he is sovereign, he's going to accomplish his, his good, acceptable, and perfect will when it's all said and done, uh, yeah, I affirm that. But if by saying that I say, therefore, I don't have any choice in the matter. It's all God. I'm saying something the Bible doesn't say. In the same way, if I say, well, you know, it does say, you know, uh, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Uh, so, uh, you know, anybody that is uh, thirsty can come to God, and God really doesn't know who's going to come, and, uh, and uh, some people will and some people won't. Uh, you know, so God is kind of clueless and surprised when people come to be saved. He doesn't know how it's all going to turn out. I'm saying something that the Bible doesn't say. So how do you put those two things together? Well, my famous analogy of my conversation with my third-year theology prof at Talbot Theological Seminary, I said, how do you reconcile predestination and free will? And he looked at me and he said, if the tension goes out of this issue for you, it means the spring is broken. Now, if we go too far on either side, we've broken the spring. We affirm what the Bible says without denying what it does not deny. So let us know if that helps you out. Here's a question from Javier, who wants to know. This is uh, uh, on behalf of a new convert friend, so we can be gentle. But uh, he wants to know, why should we keep ourselves until marriage? This isn't referring to sexual ethics. Is this just one of God's arbitrary rules that applied to a particular people at a particular time? Uh, he has some trouble with this idea. Thanks. Oh, God bless you, Javier. Thank you for being the mediator. I know this is a difficult topic for a lot of people because we like to feel good. Yeah. But when it comes to the issue of sexual ethics, they've pretty much been the same since we've had a body, let alone a libido. And I don't mean to be crass, but here's the point that's being made. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul the Apostle, after following through on legal matters between fellow Christians, he then moves from the legal to the, well, I guess, intimate, and follow his line of argument. I'll break it down afterwards, but hopefully this will answer the question directly. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He quotes a Greek proverb, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But, this is where he makes his response to that logic, God will both destroy it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Note that point, because it's this issue in a nutshell. The body is not for for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Just anybody. Now, note this, certainly not. Let that not even be a thought. Right. Right? Very strong, yeah. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? And then he quotes the Old Testament, where he says, The two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit 
with him. So notice, we're not in a sexual relationship with Jesus, but the physical act of sexual intimacy reflects a spiritual reality and has the same severity. Right. Now note this, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Right. Notice he's repeating this point twice now. Yeah. The union of spirit and the union of body, we don't make that distinction anymore. Who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Now, this is what's most relevant to the new convert. We can get into the theology in a second, but note, you were bought at a price. The person who believes in Jesus, even if it's the first and only thing they have under their belt, this applies to them. You were bought at a price. What did Jesus do with his body for yours? Now, note this. Therefore, in light of this, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are, not one is and one will become his later, so have fun with your body before your spirit catches up, are, they both, body and spirit, are God's. So here's essentially Paul's case. Going back again to verse 12, what did he start with? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. The imperative in all of this is what's going to be most profitable for you. He then quotes a Greek proverb in saying that this is what the world tries to profit from, the body for stomach, and the, or the stomach for food, the food for the stomach. That means you have a part of your body that's intended for food. Well, there's also a part of your body that is for sexuality. But note is that always just meant to be used however you want? Paul makes the point against it. Why? Because God will both destroy it and the body. There is judgment to be had against those who would violate its intended use. Now, what's the intended use? He goes back to Genesis chapter 2, not the Old Testament idea, because this is again quoted by Jesus in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 19, Yes. and again in Ephesians chapter 5 in referencing marriage, and that's what? Let a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So with that then in mind, how is he building this case? If the argument is, well, I have hunger, I have a desire for food, and I have a part of my body where the food goes, therefore, just if you feel hungry, eat. Then they would apply that to their ethics sexually. They would say, well, you have a sex drive, so let sex drive. If you feel attracted to that person, that's your sexuality, that's your identity, that's your purpose for which you have a sexual organ to appease and to please it. But Paul throws that argument on its head, saying, you weren't created because of an appetite and to fulfill it. You were created to, referencing Isaiah's earlier question, to glorify God in your body. So if I reflect God's nature in my body, in my sexuality, how do I do that if, according to John chapter 4, God is spirit? He doesn't have a body, let alone that particular part of my body. Well, I can reflect him in the spirit, and that's what? By not violating the purpose by which that was created. He says, if you're one spirit with God, and you make yourself one with a harlot, now again, that's a broad term for just someone who's loose, but note the point that's being made, this applies to girls as well, heterosexual too, 
God help us, I have to specify these things now. The points that are being made is this, though. If I join myself physically to someone, it's not just a physical act. It's a spiritual act. If the Holy Spirit is one with me, and I join myself to someone outside of the one God has joined to me, then I'm dishonoring, I'm not reflecting Him. This isn't an arbitrary thing, this is something that was a part of our sexual union from its very beginning. The moment that Adam was introduced to his wife, woman at the time, who was later named Eve, that was intended. God said, this is very good. Let not man separate what God has joined. If I join myself to them, and them, and those, and these, and thy, and thou, and their, then I'm not Whatever reflecting... Whatever pronoun you want to use. Yeah. yeah, then I'm not going to be reflecting the intended purpose. Now note, this is referenced again in the same book one chapter prior, if there's people who are sexually immoral in the world, I shouldn't be surprised because they don't know God. They're not spiritually joined yeah. to Him. Yeah. I'm not going to expect them to live as if this is true. But if someone does hold Christian ethics, they need to understand that just like any other ethic, it's meant to reflect God. That I look at myself no longer as an object of entertainment or gratification, that I live off of appetites like the Gentiles who do not know God, but I live in light of what Jesus has done for me. I was bought at a price. Now, speaking to a generation that has more accessibility to sexual immorality than ever. We don't have to go to the Greek brothels and temples of Aphrodite, which the Corinthians had regular access to, but it was culturally seen as absolutely fine. We have pornography today, we have hookup culture today, although that's being readdressed, as Peter and I talked about last week. All these things are very accessible, right. they're very justified, it's from a very non-God perspective. But for us to then say, well, is this just something that applied to the Old Testament? Well, no, this is the New. Is this something that just applied back in the first century? No, you are still Christians, you were still bought at a price, according to Paul's argument. That still applies today as well, but it's not easy. Duh! Yeah. <laughs> the whole point of the Christian life is a literal war at our, within ourselves, with ourselves. Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 7, I would not have known covetousness, that's the Tenth Commandment, by the way, in Exodus 20, unless the law had said, you shall not covet, but I, being sold under sin, carnal, by it, by the law, by the commandment, recognize something as good, but then also awakened in me all manner of evil desire. The moment that we say, you know, don't touch that cactus, suddenly we're drawn to it like a magnet. Why? Fallen nature. That's why 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, doesn't set up this system of don't mess it up because God did a lot of work to clear off that whiteboard of requirements that were against you. No, it says if we confess our sins, whether it's in our sexuality, whether it's in our diet, whether it's in our mouths, whether it's in our minds, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in our singleness, fill in the blank. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we confess our sins, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 says, he is... Um, I went to verse 9. If we say we have no sin, we right. make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, meaning trustworthy. He'll always do it, and just. He'd be fair in doing so in light of what Jesus has done for us. 
for those things, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So notice that the Apostle John, and he continues this point into the second chapter as well, I write to you these things so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You look at sin, you look at the reality that we sin, whether it's in our sexuality, in our the ways that we use our mouths and deception or sarcasm, cutting people down, something we struggle with a lot, especially in this world of less and less accountability for it. And we have one of two options. We can either go the route of saying, well, does that really apply to us? I mean, when Paul said that, you know, homosexuals are of those who won't inherit the kingdom of God, isn't that just referring to pederasty? And, you know, as long as you're monogamous, God can sanctify those relationships too. No, I don't play fast and loose the Word of God. But if, on the other hand, I look at the Word of God and realize, I am sexually immoral, I am dishonest, I am a cheater, I am a thief, I am gluttonous, I am fill in the blank, I am not worthy of God. Well, I can do one of two things. I can say, I need mercy, or God needs to fit with the times. Which one is going to be disrespectful? Which one's going to be accurate? Which one's going to be sinful? Which one's going to result in me being cleansed from my sin? These are the things that we need to take to heart, because the more and more that we grow in our relationship with God, you're going to discover two things. One, that God is great, and I'm not God. Yeah. So if that is where he's starting, be gracious with him, acknowledge the fact that he has just taken one step, the one step that makes all the difference in eternity, but still one step out from a world that takes all these things for granted, that doesn't care what happens or what you do with your body, that sees no consequence apart from the immediate physical, and says, well, just do what you feel like because it wouldn't be so wrong if it feels so right. On the other hand, if I now acknowledge Jesus as God, if I realize I have been bought with a price, verse 20 says, then I say, that's 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, by the way, then I will say, okay, how do I live in light of that? And then you realize this isn't as easy as I thought it'd be, but we call that growth. Every single day, every single moment, we have a new opportunity to get up again and say, Dad, I messed up. Can you clean this for me? And I can figure this out. And he says, you can't figure this out. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had to have come and died for you to make this possible. Fair point. So in this arbitrary conversation between me and God, what then do I do about it? Well, you keep asking for forgiveness. You keep letting him work on your heart. You keep letting him do a work in your heart that sees him as more valuable than the things we used to live for, whether that's in our sexuality, whether that's in our appetites, whether it's in anything. The world says the food for stomach, the stomach for food. Paul says, Jesus says, I died so that you could live for something more than just how you feel because those things go leave just as quickly as they arrive. There's something more that we were created for, and the point being made in sexual ethics is this. The world has its rules, Jesus has his rules. Pick a side. And there are a reason for those rules, not to take away our fun, but to keep us from killing ourselves and each other, because I don't have to go into details. The kind of severity, the kind of damage that people can experience in their lives, their psyche, their relationships, their view of others and themselves when they play fast and loose with their sexuality. And it's also very clear and apparent when Christians try to play fast and loose, play both sides of the team, and the damage that does to their ministry as well. God set these rules not because he's arbitrary, but because by his nature he created us for a purpose, and it wasn't for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I just I 
I thoroughly agree with that. You know, the other thing is, you know, obviously we want to honor God with our bodies in the vertical and really in the horizontal, uh, the idea of God saying, hey, I want your sexuality to be practiced. One man, one woman for life committed relationship uh, is also pretty important on the horizontal. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, we read this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. So uh, the, the, the aspect of it that uh, was raised uh, by that question by Javier, uh, that, you know, is this just something for people back then? Well, no, this says that this is a, a timeless principle from God's word. If you reject this, you're not just saying, oh, yeah, these guys on the radio were all big about uh, monogamy and keeping yourself pure and all this, but, you know... Um, you know, who knows? You know, God didn't really say. No, God does say, and he said it pretty clearly, uh, you know, don't rip off your brother in this, this area. How can you rip off your brother? By taking from your brother something that should have only belonged to he and his wife. You know, the best analogy I've, I've heard about this is conduct yourself in every relationship you have with the opposite sex that if uh, you were asked to be the best man or maid of honor at their wedding going forward, you wouldn't feel embarrassed about that. Probably a pretty good standard to follow. But the vertical aspect is there as well. Don't reject God uh, just because you say, well, that's just man's idea. No, it's not man's idea. It's God's idea. God created our sexuality. It's a very powerful part of who we are, but a very dangerous part of what we are. Maybe the best analogy I've ever heard is our sexuality is almost like a, uh, a burning piece of wood. You have a burning piece of wood, and it's in its fireplace, in its proper place. It's a blessing. It provides warmth to the house. You take that out and put it on the sofa, you got trouble. So, All right. Um, question from Yari, who wants to know how can people glorify God with their IQ if they have more or if they have less? Um, there's a passage Jesus made the observation of in Luke chapter 12, and this is, again, a parable, so I'll default to you as far as the interpretation of it, but I'll read it, and you can make the application. <laughs> the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give to them their portion of food in due season? That's the guy we want to be, right? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, for truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master's delaying is coming, and begins to beat his male and female servants, to eat and drink with the drunk, and the master that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two, and apport him a portion with the unbelievers." And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. Here's the kick. For everyone to whom much is given, 
from him much will be required, and from whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Yeah. Now, obviously, this is a parable. This is an illustrative story meant to bring home a finer point. The punchline is, if you're given more, more is expected. If you're given less, less will be expected. Because if you didn't do the things that you weren't really given anyway, you're not going to be punished for that, right? Right. Now, there's two kinds of servants, the one who does his master's will and is rewarded, the one who doesn't do his master's will and is punished. Yeah. Now, what is the point of application in regards to Yari's question? If people are given more IQ, what does God expect for them? Well, you know, first of all, you know, the, the Bible never makes a big deal about IQ yeah, that's, or, that's, uh, or, or intelligence uh, measurement standards. Uh, you know, I mean, different people have different abilities to be able to use the brains they have. But, you know, the, the interesting thing about the Bible is, is this. First of all, it not only doesn't say that your level of knowledge, you're able to put concepts together or how well you did on your SATs, uh, has nothing to do whatsoever with your standing or status before God in the kingdom of God. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of this world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore it is written, let him who glories glory in the Lord. Don't glory in your IQ, you know. Don't glory because, uh, you know, you can, uh, you know, wow people with your knowledge at Scrabble, Scrabble or Bananagrams or something like that. No, if you're going to glory in anything, glory in what Jesus has done for you. And going back to that parable that you mentioned earlier, Sean, uh, another theology prof of mine was really good about reminding us uh, wet behind the ears uh, cocky seminarians of something, and he, he had this phrase, you know, in the Christian life we see over and over and over again the message of the Bible is that we don't need more spiritual IQ, we need more spiritual I do. God is going to judge us based upon those things that we do understand and how well and consistently we applied them, not the amount of knowledge that we have. God isn't going to ever sit us down and have us do a Greek exam when we get to heaven, yeah, which is great for all of us. But we are going to be evaluated based upon the gifts and abilities and talents that we have, and God has a different way of evaluating that. Um, you know, He is not looking so much for results He's looking for faithfulness. So, Yari, be faithful with what you got, and God will bless that. Yeah, and of course, if you think, oh, I can't do more, you haven't been called to it. That's the good news. Yeah. Do what you have been called to, and what you've been called to, you're equipped for, because as our good uh, glorified brother in the Lord once observed, where God guides, he provides. Yeah. So make yeah. sure that's the goal. I think I understand this next question here. You know, there was a question about how predestination and free will were two sides of the same coin. Uh, I think that's what's being referred to here. There's a really interesting scripture, I think, that illustrates that. Uh, it's found in the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. There we read this, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but also so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's man's responsibility, right? We're to work out our salvation with fear 
and trembling. But the very next verse says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So according to that, who lives the Christian life, us or God? Yes. Yeah, both. So two sides of the same coin. All right. Um, here's our contradiction for the day. I'm not really going to entertain this one because I have expectations, but uh, the claim is the Bible contradicts itself in what God's name is. In Exodus 6, 2 through 3, it says Yahweh. In Exodus three fourteen, it says, I am. I am that I am has sent you. So God's name. Um, we live in the 21st century in the United States, and on our birth certificates and legal documentation, we're usually, usually only allowed one legal name. Um, is God registering on the United States Treasury in order to properly receive a Social Security number and fill in his billing addresses? No. Uh, well, you know, there, as a matter of fact, rather than that being a contradiction, it's a, a complete harmonization. Because I am. If, if, the, if the, the, the person had said he's called Jehovah somewhere else, uh, is that a problem? Well, no, it's German. not even a, really a problem because uh, when you have God saying in Genesis 3, Moses asking the question of the day, who shall I say sent me? Uh, God said, tell them I am has sent you, I am that I am has sent you. Well, the Jews also had a commandment from God in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so they were so worried about taking the name of the Lord in vain that they didn't really want to speak the holy name of God, I am that I am. Now, in Hebrew, uh, that is represented by four Hebrew letters. What are they? Here's your pop quiz. Uh, yod heth vow heth, or in the English equivalent, Y-V-H, or Y-H-V-H. Right. Now, the Jews consider that so holy that they wouldn't pronounce it. They would simply say what? Hashem, the which, name. Which means the name. So uh, when we see that being used there, it's not a contradiction. Rather, it's the same statement being made twice. God refers to himself as yod heth vau heth Yahweh, or Jehovah, as we would say, but he also spe specified what the meaning of that was in Genesis 3.14, I am that I am. It's emphasizing his eternal nature. Yeah. He is the only God that was and is and it will continue to be. Yeah, it's so once again, that principle, call the bluff of those who say that the Bible contradicts itself. And know what a contradiction is. God, God bless, bless you. you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.